But the point is that we start to see in Ruth a kind of covenant faithfulness that's absent in Naomi and absent in Israel over and over again in the book of Judges. Boaz will pick up on this when Ruth later asks him, why are you paying attention to me? And he says, because you abandoned your people to come to people you did not know. And this echoes with the call to Abraham to live by faith, to leave his family and go to the place that the Lord would show him. Aaron, we're back, but without Matthew. We are, and you sound kind of excited about it, AJ. I think it's the caffeine because I had to get up so early to take Matthew to the airport. What time did you have to drop him off? I dropped him off at 4.30. Okay, wow. A little before then. Well, and add to that that we're recording during the middle of the day, so we're kind of in the afternoon slump at the one thirty hour. So I guess you probably did need some caffeine if you were going to record after being up that early. I certainly did, Aaron. How's your caffeine intake? You know, I've had two cups of coffee today. I had one at 4.45 and then another one around 8. Early birds today then. I know. I know. Isn't it great? I got so much stuff done. Yeah, including probably your Bible reading for today's reading. Now, this week we're in week 20. Wow. Yeah, and if you're following along on the Every Day with Jesus reading plan, those days are days 134 to 140. And we're starting in the book of Ruth for the Old Testament reading. And right as our family came and started attending Resurrection Church. I think you were finishing up your series through Ruth. Is that right? I think so. So I I missed the first, I think, first half of your sermon messages through the book of Ruth. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about, about this book. Well, I think I preached 11 sermons on Ruth. I think that's right. Remind me how many chapters are in? There are four. four. So I just pulled up on our website, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. Yeah, 11 sermons. And this was one of my favorite sermon series that I've ever done. Why is that? I just really enjoyed getting in, into the story. Uh, I had been taking a class the semester previous, so I had done a lot of translation work. I wrote a biblical theology of Ruth paper for that class, and then I was able to preach through it and just really enjoyed it. And I think it's the first narrative that I've ever preached. What did you find different about preaching narrative? I mean, I think it's way easier because it's easier to fold people into the story um, to point out various features, and draw our attention to why the story matters and should help shape our own stories, we might say. Where I think epistles, it's kind of harder because you it's a lot more technical and less artistic sometimes, if that makes sense. Okay. So I would say if you're interested in the book of Ruth, you could do like 11 days of studying it or something and listen to those or alternatively, there is a podcast episode on our church podcast where I sat down with Jason Harrison from Redeemer Bible Church, 
I started to interview him about the Book of Ruth, but then he kind of like reversed roles and interviewed me. So, you know, I had a lot of fun with that as well. Uh, that's on our church website somewhere too. So Aaron, at the beginning of the Book of Ruth, we see that Elimelech and his family are in the land, but a famine happens, and then they leave the land. What, what is significant about that? Well, when we've read through the book of Deuteronomy, we heard the promises of the Lord over and over again that he would lead them into the land and that they would be provided for, they would be cared for as long as they maintained covenant faithfulness with God. Um, but when we enter into this story, there's a famine in the land. Now, we know from reading in like Deuteronomy 8, in the past, God has humbled his people by uh, keeping food from them. And then when they repent and return to the Lord, he provides for them once again. So when there's a famine in the land during the time of the judges, you know, we just went through that book. I think we should be saying Israel is living in idolatry. They're not living in covenant faithfulness with God. There's a famine in the land. So what people need to do is leave their false gods and return to the Lord. So when the story starts out, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left his false gods and returned to the Lord. That's not, that's not what happens. Instead, he leaves Bethlehem in Judah and goes to the territory of Moab. So out of the promised land and even further away from the Lord. Uh, so it's almost like a self-imposed exile where now he's not looking for Yahweh to solve the famine problem. He's looking for Kamosh, this god of the Moabites, mm. to solve the famine problem. Now, oh, go ahead. I was just going to pull a Matthew and be like, it's, you know, it's easy to... It's easy to run from to, your problems right. instead of return to the Lord, right? Exactly. And But the problem is they take themselves wherever they're going, right? Mm-hmm. So when they get there, over a span of time, Elimelech dies, uh, and then his sons get married to pagan women. Also not... You know, not not right. And then they're married for over 10 years without children. So if you're thinking of the promises of God in terms of in the land, full of blessing and offspring, they have none of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then these two sons die. So the only original emigrant is uh, Naomi. And now she has her two daughters-in-law who are not related to her in any way. Uh, So... We're, we're in a tough spot here. Now, I will I should say that there are some commentators and, and you know, a lot, a lot of people who would suggest that I'm reading way too much into this story to frame it so negatively because they'll say, well, there's n- nothing explicit about God's judgment. Well, I want to say if we've been reading Joshua and Judges, you know, Deuteronomy before that, when we hear this kind of a situation, it may be the case that they were living righteously and that there was nothing wrong about them leaving the land. But but I would suggest that everything that we've read up to this point makes us assume that when there's a famine in the land, it's a bad thing. More than that, I would say in the text itself, uh, there are individuals who remained in Bethlehem during the, the famine And what's more, the Lord returns and visits his people with food. 
That's, that's what's said in verse 6 of chapter 1. Um, Naomi's heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. So the people who left the land were not there when God visited his people with food. So I think there's at least a critical eye that we should have towards Elimelech and Naomi, their family, for leaving the land. Why did they have to leave when everyone else stayed? You know, these are questions that I think would make us be inclined to have a negative judgment about this situation. So we talked about why they left. Now we're going to talk about when they return, Naomi and Ruth. One daughter-in-law decides to stay, but Ruth doesn't. She decides to go with Naomi. Why Why do you think she made that choice? Well, it's hard to say why she made that choice other than um, she is showing covenant steadfast love for Naomi, even though Naomi doesn't deserve it, even though Naomi is antagonistic towards it. And, Na- you know, Ruth is doing essentially what Abraham did and what Naomi ought to have been doing, which is to um, come to the Lord, right? So Ruth tells Naomi, look, I want to go with you. And then Naomi says, no, your you're sister-in-law you're also not related to it all, went back to her people and her gods, you go there as well. And and then when Ruth persists and makes this covenant pledge to her, which is often repeated in weddings, um, Naomi remains silent. She doesn't say a thing. So you can imagine the awkwardness for the rest of the journey to Bethlehem. But, but the point is that we start to see in Ruth a kind of covenant faithfulness that's absent in Naomi and in, in absent in Israel over and over again in the book of Judges. Uh, Boaz will pick up on this when Ruth later asks him, why are you paying attention to me? And he says, because you abandoned your people uh, to come to people you did not know. And, and this echoes with the call to Abraham to live by faith, to leave his family and go to the place that the Lord would show him. Uh, just... Ruth doesn't even have a direct word from the Lord here, and I don't think we should assume that her dead husband and his family were evangelistic in such a way that she she knew of the promised blessing of the Lord in the land. They get back, yeah, and then she meets Boaz. Yeah, so we can track this story, and I think, you know, like any good story, you want to track multiple characters and see kind of the the arc of their story within this story. And depending on how much time you want us to spend in Ruth, I think maybe we should just focus on Naomi, actually. And I think as we trace her character development, uh, whether or not she has a choice to leave the land, it's hard to say. It seems like her husband made that choice, but she decided to remain there long after his death. So I think we're looking at her with some level of suspicion regarding her faithfulness to the Lord and her pursuit of covenant faithfulness with God. But then when we hear her trying to send her daughters-in-law back, I, I hear that very negatively. And in fact, she's not returning because her sons have died and her husband has died and she's woken up to the fact that she needs to return to the Lord and in so doing return to the land. She heard they had food. She heard they had food. Uh, 
That's when she decides to return. And on the way, she does the opposite of what Israel's call is. So instead of being a light to the nations, she sends these two girls back to a a pagan land to find pagan husbands to worship a pagan god. So I would look at Naomi and say her deportment is suspect. It's problematic, we might say. Um, She gets to the city and when the women of the city are speaking to her and, you know, they're saying, can this be Naomi? She responds to them, don't call me Naomi, um, which I think means something like pleasant. Uh, call me bitter. Call me Mara. So we get the sense that she's bitter. And then she goes on to almost blame God for her bitterness. She says, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Um, And she's half right on these things, right? She went away kind of full, but why did they go away? Because their pantry was empty. Um, And then when she came back, her family was dead, but there was also her daughter-in-law who just pledged herself to this lady for life. So she's not totally empty. So she's right, but she's not right. But in the end, she blames the Almighty for it. And um, if I remember correctly, this name for God, Almighty, appears most frequently in context relating to fertility. So probably she's especially considering her two sons that have died. Um, Even at the beginning of the book, when her sons are adult men and they've died, she talks about her, her children. You know, these young children have been taken from her. So it seems like that's what she's lamenting primarily. And so you you start to get into her head a little bit and understand that one of the major plot lines is a famine of the womb, essentially. Uh, no more children. The family line is cut off. So So what does this lady who's come back empty do? How will the family line be preserved? And then what about the the famine of food? You know, that's, we know in Israel has been restored, but what about for her now as a, a single widow? You know, these are questions that we'll see along the way. Now, we do see her start to warm up to Ruth along the way is uh, she observes Ruth's faithfulness to her. So Naomi then contrives this somewhat sketchy situation where Ruth will essentially make a proposal to Boaz. And um, then, you know, at the end of all of this, it all turns out well. Boaz marries Ruth. And then you have like a mirror of the story at the end. So if you remember when Naomi arrives in the city, the women of the city speak to her and she responds with bitterness. Well, at the end of the story, we have another scene where she's in the city And the women of Bethlehem are speaking to her, and they pronounce a blessing on her. And uh, it, it goes like this, starting in verse 14. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. So that resolves the plot line of this bitterness of the Almighty, the God of the womb, who's cut off the family line, so to speak. Uh, May his name become well known in Israel. Is that Yahweh's name, or is that, you know, her grandson's name. It's ambiguous, probably both. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. 
So once again, what she couldn't understand while Ruth is standing next to her and she's telling everyone, call me bitter because God's taken everything from me. While she wasn't interpreting the events of her life correctly, these women of the city now see it and are telling her, look, the one who you were ignoring while you were bitterly complaining, she's better to you than seven sons, better than your sons Malon and Killian, whose names mean something like weak and sickly, right? So that they weren't great sons maybe anyway. We get to the end of this word of blessing. And if we're wanting parallelism and closure, so if we at the start, the women spoke and we heard Naomi's response. For good closure to the story, what we want is Naomi's response being something like, yes, blessed be the name of the Lord. Right. Radio silence. Nothing. We hear the narrator description of her taking the child and acting like a nurse to him. Um, but then the neighbor women name the son, um, and then we have the genealogy, but we never hear from Naomi. And I think the literary effect of that is to put us in Naomi's shoes and ask how we respond to God's faithfulness, even through hardship and difficulty and suffering. And, and what we want her to say is what we know we ought to say. I mean, a lot of times we, we do respond like Naomi or Mara. We're, we're bitter. We're not pleasant and respond with praise to God for mm. how he's brought us through situations. But we focus on the negatives of what we've been dealt or what we're dealing with. And yeah. And, and I think, you know, maybe to end it in more of a positive light, we could say that we just see Naomi accepting what God has given her in silence. And sometimes that's the right path forward for us. So I don't want to say that the way I'm looking at the end of this story with her being silent is lacking something in us wanting her to say something. Maybe it is truly just uh, someone who now is going to live a faithful and quiet life, um, accepting the things that God has given her. And, and I think that's a right path forward for many of us, probably more often than we'd want. Just thinking about what you said last week about how we apply Old Testament passages, I think that's really interesting. Like how, you know, we can take the ending, look at it from where wherever we are in life and whatever situation we're working through or issue that we have. And sometimes it is just this acceptance and silence or a situation we did not wish to, to be in or to have. But And then other times it's, it's an active... I need to turn my attitude or my response to the situation to praise instead of complaining or being bitter. Yeah, really absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great things about stories, right? Depending on what stage of life you're in when you hear the story or uh, what you're experiencing in that moment, the way that the story hits you is going to be a little bit different. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong necessarily, but the story is big enough that it can accommodate these different responses. Um, and I, you know, there's this book by Scott Fitzgerald called The Great Gatsby, and it's really notorious. Not maybe not notorious. It's it's well known in literary comments about the way that college kids respond to that versus someone in their 30s, and both of them might be appropriate responses. But based on the stage of life you're in, it's going to be pretty different. And I, and I think that's how a lot of stories work for us. Now, I think it's great that 
um, you, AJ, care about some more nerdy things related to biblical interpretation, and one of them is the arrangement of the books in the Bible. And a lot of people at our church, I think, know based on some of the comments from when we went through Esther and Ruth when I preached through it, that throughout the centuries, people have put the books of the Bible together in different orders. And in the ancient, ancient days, that was just on a list where you would like list the books in the Bible because there weren't books, they were scrolls, right? So they'd be rolled up and put on a shelf or in a jar or something. So it wasn't like they were situated right next to each other necessarily. But when people were naming the list of, of scriptures, they would have things in arrangement, you know, in a particular order. And then when the codex came around, the book form, uh, we started putting things right next to each other and sewing them together, right? Or or however that worked. I, I don't know. I think they were sewn together. Um, and... There are, there's a pretty popular Hebrew edition of the Bible that most seminary guys use called the BHS. And in that edition, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. And then for some lists, it's right before Psalms. In our English Bible, which is kind of taking the arrangement of the Latin Bible following the Septuagint, I think, it's, right, it's between Judges and 1 Samuel. What do you think about these things? Yeah, so I pulled this commentary off the shelf right before we started to record, and I op- tried to open to the book of Ruth, or the section for Ruth, and I expected it to be in between Judges and First Samuel, or Kingdoms, or whatever, and it was not there. And so Aaron reminded me that it's probably, the commentary was arranged for the arrangement of a popular Hebrew Bible. So in the commentary, it was even in a section after they talked about the book of Proverbs. Yeah, I find this fascinating. Yeah, very fascinating. So let me quiz you, AJ. Why would it be placed between Judges and 1 Samuel? Because of the line of David. Ruth is part of the line of David. And in 1 Samuel, we start to talk about the kings. Okay, yeah, so that's that's the connection that's forged at the end of Ruth. Yep. And then there's a connection at the beginning of Ruth. The Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin. Well, even before that, that that would connect it to Judges. Okay. Which is during the times of the Judges. You know, the the first line connects it to the book of Judges. The Judges. Yeah. The Judges ruled. Yep. Talking about the Judges. Exactly. That's what what connects it to Judges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are those are Judges. more obvious. <laughs> now, what about the Psalms, the placement right before Psalms? Well, David wrote most of the Psalms, and then Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. Yeah, spot right? on, right on. Yeah, the, the Davidite connection. Davidite. Now, what about the placement right after Proverbs? The Proverbs 31 woman, and Ruth is, of course, yeah. an example of that. Really close. Um, the question that I think it's King Lemuel's mother it, asks him. Is it the silence? that? No, not the silence. Oh. Uh, but the, the question is, who can find a virtuous woman in Proverbs 31? You know, it's translated different ways, a noble woman or a woman of good character, it's, it's all the same phrasing. When Ruth 
goes to Boaz um, in the dead of night, and then he talks to her. He says, everybody knows that you are a woman of virtuous character, of noble character. So it's the same oh, wording. Okay. So you kind of can see the connection there as well. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It's really interesting. Sweet. Well, that's a little Bible trivia for our listeners. Now, as we transition into 1 Samuel, another connection point between Ruth and 1 Samuel is that you have another situation where there's a woman who doesn't have any children. Now, this is a really weird situation because you have this guy who has two wives, um, you know, so that's problematic. Uh, But then also you have a priest with two sons. There's a lot of literary artistry going on here. Uh, But I just wanted to point out that you have another question about offspring and a family line. Mm -hmm. Now, AJ, I know that you love 1 Samuel. So why don't you walk us through what struck you most in these texts? In part because I failed to prepare by reading them. Yeah, so we see this lady... Hannah, who doesn't have a son but wants children, and she prays to the Lord, and she is fervently praying, and she's, you know, praying silently, but her mouth is moving, and the the priest sees her and thinks she's drunk because she, you know, is acting strange, and she says, "No, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just pleading to God to give me a son." And and God answers her prayer, and she dedicates Samuel to the temple, and Samuel lives at the temple and serves there. With Eli, like you said, Eli's sons are worthless. God calls calls to Samuel in the night, and he thinks Eli's calling him, and Eli recognizes it finally and says, no, no, when God, when you hear that voice, you know, just say, your servant's here. And so from that time on, God speaks to Samuel and is his prophet and judge. We have these battles with the, the Philistines, and they capture the ark, and... They try to put the ark in with their god, Dagon, and there's that funny story about how the, the idol keeps falling down and its appendages break off, I think. And, you know, they realize that people are getting boils and they're getting sick and dying even when wherever the ark is in this, this land, and so they get rid of the ark. Eventually, the Israelites demand to have a king, and the people choose this guy named Saul who lost some donkeys and... You know, he's walking around looking for the donkeys, and everybody sees that he's this tall, handsome guy. He looks pretty kingly. Let's let's choose this guy. Aaron, is that a good way to choose a king? You know, I think our listeners will recall our reading from Deuteronomy 17, where the provisions for a king are laid out, and nothing about physical attractiveness or stature is present there. So I, what I'm suggesting is that's not a great reason to make someone your king. It's not a good reason, and it does not pan out well. Immediately we see he offers a sacrifice because he couldn't wait for Samuel to get there. and Or because of that, God tells Saul that his line won't continue and that he's going to choose someone else to be king. Yeah, we end with this really sad account of Israel's first king failing just as much as the judges previously failed with Israel being just as hard-hearted and sinful So where we ended the book of Judges with this hope that if they just get a king, people won't do what's right in their own eyes, they'll do what's right in the Lord's eyes. Well, they raised up someone from among them who 
was inclined to do what was right in his own eyes instead of what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But we do start to see a shift here where instead of every person just doing what they want and as a nation receiving judgment or blessing because of it, we now start to see where the nation is really represented by the king. And as the king will go, so the nation will go. And as we progress through these books, we'll start to get the sense that Israel needs a righteous shepherd king who will allow the nation to flourish under his rule and will probably be disappointed more often than not. Yeah, Aaron, and that helps us see and anticipate Jesus as the righteous king, shepherd king that that we need. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And significantly, as we transition to our New Testament readings, where we've finished up the book of Luke, Luke uses kingship and kingdom language all the time to talk about Jesus. But as we transition into the gospel of John, there's a shift from the language of the kingdom of God to the language of eternal life. So John adds to our understanding of Jesus a little bit of a different dimension, uh, but in Luke especially, I think in Matthew as well, we really feel that this anticipation that we've had all the way back here in 1 Samuel of the need for a righteous shepherd king is met in Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's interesting that when we get to John's gospel, there are a lot of differences between that gospel account and the other the other Gospels. There's a, there's a lot of differences. The other Gospels have their accounts of, of Jesus's life and his ministry for their own purposes, and John's seems to be very different. There's, there's no virgin birth. There's no Sermon on the Mount, no Lord's Prayer. Uh, there's no parables even. Demon exorcisms, which is very common in those other Gospels, there's no account in the book of John. There's no end time discussion either. So it's really interesting. You know, John makes it clear why he wrote the book towards the end of the, the gospel in chapter 20. The purpose, he says, is that Jesus did these many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written down, but these signs that were written down are there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have eternal life have life in his name. So we see that purpose, and then as we read through the book and get to that, we can reread and see these different signs that John is pointing out throughout the book that point to Jesus being the Messiah and its purpose so that we would believe in him. Well, I think it's just a lot of the, like I said, those smaller things, like why why was it written this way? Because it is so different. So different from the other Gospels or what? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's a problem. These disciples are their own people, right? Like, obviously, they have shared training by Jesus, but as you as you well know, John's writing with terminology that reflects a Greco-Roman philosophical view of the world, uh, this kind of Neoplatonic category, and the others don't so much. They they seem to be leaning a lot more heavily on Hebraic thought. So I don't know that I would look at that as, okay, now we need to locate the authorship in someone other than John, particularly if we're saying that the community of his followers are taking what he wrote 
or what he taught and now putting it in writing. Sure. We still have the same problem. We're just kicking it to a different group yeah. down the road a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. We just talked about authorship. When we talk about the audience, I like the way that Kostenberger put it where he said that John's writing to Jews who are steeped in that Greco-Roman culture. And so that's why you'll see elements of being written to Jews, but also with Hellenistic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you see this in the letter to the Hebrews as well. A lot of the same philosophical categories. You have this when Paul is writing to Gentiles, probably primarily 1 Corinthians, right? And then with kind of the heavenly, earthly, the man of heaven, the man of earth, and then, of course, in his his letters in Revelation as well. In those letters, probably, we, I think, would say these false teachers who went out from them are people who converted from Judaism to Christianity and now are, like, reconverting back. And so he's definitely speaking to Jewish audience, but within a Greco-Roman framework. So this first chapter is referred to as the prologue. And it is very different. It's it's very theological, talking about the word coming and tr- light and darkness. And we see John, but not John, the author of the book, John the Baptist. What What is the purpose of this, this first chapter here? I mean, the first chapter does a lot of different things. It's very poetic. It stokes our imagination. But ultimately, it draws attention to Jesus and the need that the entire world has for Jesus, their need to believe in him, and their need to find new life in him. AJ, what would you say is the main purpose of the first chapter? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it does draw attention to Jesus and the need to continue reading the book. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the other Gospels, you might be, you know, you might be looking at Matthew and Mark and be like, ah, genealogies are boring. Luke is a little bit better because you jump right into a narrative, but what a long birth story. You know, that's forever long. And then you get a forever long genealogy. Well, here you get this rich poetic uh, description of Jesus's preexistence, his incarnation. You have appeal to both the Greco-Roman worldview and like the, the Old Testament texts that speak of God's presence, tabernacling with his people. This just draws you right in. Yeah, and you mentioned um, some Trinitarian features that the book of John has and is critical to our doctrine of the Trinity that we'll we'll see as we continue to read through the book. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously this is emphasizing Jesus's pre-existence where like Matthew and Mark in particular are really beginning with his human family line. This sort of allows us to look at it from the opposite angle, and it creates a parallel to the start of the Hebrew Old Testament, where in the beginning, God created. And now there's this account of creation where the creative agent is the word, Jesus. The last thing I want to say about that is that it's suggested that this chapter, this poetic section in the the first chapter is written as a chiasm, which is corresponding parallel sections and the center of the chiasm which the main point is actually that his own people did not receive him and that indicates that 
this message is going to go from the Jews outward to the Sumerians and to the Gentiles. We're going to see that in this Cana cycle. These characters, Nicodemus, who's a Jew, who should be you know, understanding these things way more than anyone else, and we see him completely misunderstanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you need to be born again. He's like, what? You need to get... How do you get born? How, do you, how are you born again? How are you born a second time? Does not get what Jesus is saying. But then we see him talk to the Samaritan woman. And she, you know, Nicodemus, when he's talking throughout the conversation, he says less and less the more Jesus talks to him. But when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, she talks more and more and is more interested and is getting what Jesus is saying to her. And then she goes and tells people about Jesus. And then we get to the Gentile centurion who Jesus has the the second sign in Cana and we see Jesus's message this light that we're seeing in this very first chapter being spread outward away from the Jews towards those who actually will accept him because the Jews rejected him exactly and like with the other gospels there's an emphasis on uh, inheriting the promises of God through faith, right? And so where Matthew and Mark will talk about entering to the kingdom of God, John stresses that you need to be born of God, right? So to any who did receive them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And then, of course, you have Nicodemus, who's called to a rebirth, a new birth. And the way that you enter into God's family and we might say Abraham's family, is going to be through this new birth. Very often, Jesus' own people rejected him, but others received this new birth and were therefore called children of God. Well, it's been great to talk about the, the Gospel of John here as we introduce it. And there are other sections, AJ, that I know you wanted to hit, but I think we'll have to save that for next week when you're here with special guest Joshua Huber. Yeah, I'm looking forward to have Josh on. He's always great, and I really appreciate him coming on, and I think it's going to be a good discussion. Absolutely. And we also anticipate Matthew being back for the next next episode. Yep, and I, I will be away. Oh, So yeah. in my absence, I, I'll be we will miss you. eagerly anticipating the next time I can podcast with you. Well, enjoy your time off, and forward to seeing you. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org.